time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, friends, patriots, lovers of God, family, and country. Welcome to the midweek edition of the Financial Physician, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully you're doing well. Um, we have lots to talk about today, as we always do. I'm glad we're doing this midweek podcast. There's no way I can get in everything on our Sunday podcast. So two two podcasts are better than one, and uh, so much to talk about today. We're going to touch on um, the Biden family woes. They get worse each and every day, and it's starting to get comical how the, the media and the Democrats try to spin this stuff. Uh, it's, um, it's getting more desperate for everybody involved on that side of the aisle and for the Bidens themselves. So we'll dive into that. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, crazy gender stuff that just doesn't want to leave us, uh, and more crazy wokeness and, 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 and insanity that's going on in our country. But I want to start off talking about, uh, inheritance, namely retirement inheritance and, in the first quarter of 2023, there was more than $12 trillion in IRAs, quite a bit of money. And uh, if your parents you saved diligently their whole life and built up their IRAs, uh, there's a good chance that you're going to inherit some of that money. Now, if you're in line to inherit some of that money, there's new rules regarding inheriting IRAs. And I want to go over them because uh, it's a big change. And I had mentioned it when it first came out, but there's even been, been some more changes in it. And it's important that you know, if you're going to inherit an IRA, you know, how is it going to affect you from a tax perspective? Now, if you're a spouse and you inherit an IRA, it just becomes yours. So you're not really going to be affected too much by what I'm going to say here. But uh, it's great to be a spouse and inherit an IRA. It's, there's no issues regarding required minimum distributions or anything like that. But if you inherit an IRA, there's a, there's big changes. Now, it used to be that you used to be able to stretch the IRA out. You've heard of the term stretch IRA, where you'd start taking required minimum distributions based on your age. Now, the younger you are, the less you have to take out as a percentage of the inheritance of the IRA. But the SECURE Act that was signed into law in 2019 put an end to that very good tax-saving strategy for children and uh, grandchildren and other non-spouse heirs. So if you're not a spouse, you have to empty that IRA account in 10 years, which is a big difference versus emptying that over your lifetime, right? Uh, 10 years, if you inherit a large IRA, 10 years is not a long time. Uh, and it could have substantial effect on taxes and other aspects of your financial life. So uh, this is the way it works. If a person dies and they were taking required minimum distributions and you inherited their IRA account and you're not a spouse, you're going to have to take required minimum distributions based on your age. 
And if you're substantially younger, obviously you will be substantially younger than your parents, uh, you're going to take less out per year. Now, if you're a, sp- uh, if you're a person you inherited the IRA from had not started taking a required minimum distributions, then you don't have to take them either. Now it gets a little bit more complicated. Let's talk about the 10-year rule. The 10-year rule states that by the December 31st of the 10th year following the date of death of the person you inherited the IRA from, you have to have all the money out of that IRA. Now, you don't have to take 10% a year. You don't have to take anything out until the 10th year. Uh, But you have to get very good tax advice because you may have a substantially large distribution at that time. And what will that do to your tax bracket? What will it do to uh, taxation of your Social Security? What will that do to uh, the cost of Medicare Part B insurance? Uh, A lot of stuff goes into that. And it's important that you get proper advice when you inherit an IRA account because you need a strategy to exit that IRA account. All right, so say you... um, Let's talk about somebody who was taking uh, required minimum distributions and you're 50 years old and you inherit this traditional IRA from someone other than your spouse. Uh, Say there's 500,000 in it at the end of 2022. Well, you divide the balance by the life expectancy factor for a 50-year-old of 36.2. And that gives you a required minimum distribution of 13,812. Now, you could find these factors... uh, in IRS publication 590-B. Or you can look up on the IRS website, uh, required minimum distributions, life expectancy tables, and you'll be able to find that. Or just ask your accountant or financial planner, they'll have that for you. Now, every year, that factor becomes lower, which means the amount, a percent of what comes out is higher. Uh, Now, of course, you can withdraw more than the minimum, but you have to at least take the minimum amount. Now, it may make sense to take more than the minimum amount. It may be a good tax-savvy strategy to do, uh, but only you and your accountant uh, can figure that out or your financial planner. Now, keep in mind, when money comes out of an IRA account, it is ordinary income. It is taxed just like a salary would be or interest or anything else. Uh, so that could be quite substantial. And when you do take money out of an IRA, uh, almost every IRA custodian allows you to have taxes withheld against that. So, you know, I'm for my, my investment clients, where I have their IRAs, most of the time I'm their accountant as well. So I'm the one who works with them and figures out the strategy of exiting that IRA over that 10-year period. But, but let's say there's a million-dollar IRA and you don't, you don't touch it till the 10th year. You're going to have a million-dollar distribution uh, and you're going to have a mammoth tax bill. And you're going to pay a higher percent on that money than if you took it out uh, over the course of those 10 years at a lower tax bracket. Now, everybody's situation is different. Now, one strategy we do is uh, I, I sit down with my clients, the beneficiary of the IRA, and estimate their annual income over the next 10 years in order to calculate how much to withdraw each year. I factor in... Um, Upcoming events like uh, clients starting to take Social Security, or maybe they have to start taking RMDs on their own IRA account uh, or other retirement accounts. This all goes into figuring out how much, you know, or when we, how much and when we need to withdraw that money. Say um, 
and income declines for one year. Say you're between jobs, you got laid off and your income's very low. Well, maybe that year we'll take a lot more out of the IRA because it's going to be lowered. Uh, it's going to be a, a lower tax bracket because you're going to have lower income that year. Some years we have a significant amount of income. Maybe we don't take anything out at that time. Uh, so there's, there's all kinds of strategies to do this. And it's so important that you get the proper uh, advice on this. Because you're not going to figure this out yourself. Unless you're an accountant, you're not going to figure it out yourself. So what happens when you inherit an IRA? You, in, you open up an inherited IRA account. This cannot be combined with your existing IRA accounts. This is a separate entity of, in of itself because of the tax rules regarding it. So uh, one of my clients passes on and their kid is going to inherit... Uh, their kid, their child, their adult child is going to inherit their IRA. I open up an inherited IRA account for the child. Those funds are moved into that IRA account. And now we sit down and say, okay, what's a good strategy now for taking that money out? Now, first of all, this is, this is, um, this is a money grab by the federal government. The only reason they change this rule is because they're going to get a lot of taxes sooner uh, than if it was taken out over your life expectancy. For many people, 10 years is a lot less than their life expectancy, especially if you're inheriting an IRA from a parent, you're relatively young. <coughs> so uh, once you would set up this inherited IRA, you can invest it any way you choose. You know, you and your financial advisor decide how to do that. But now that the real strategy is how do we get the money out and when do we do it? Now, most people don't know what their financial situation is going to be or what their income is going to be five years from now let alone nine years from now. You know, so it's pretty difficult to do that. So the strategy may be then, well, let's just take 10% this year and see what happens next year and, and continue to refine the way we withdraw money from this. So setting up the inherited IRA is pretty, pretty easy. Uh, but how you take that money out is, is, is very, very different. And as I said, for many people, you could pay tens of thousands more in taxes if you don't have a strategy to take the money out. Now, what can you do if you're still alive and you know your kids are going to inherit significant amount of IRA money? Well, you could think about maybe converting the money into a Roth IRA from a traditional IRA. Why would you do that? Because maybe your tax bracket's much lower than what your children are going to be when they withdraw it. So say you're retired, you don't have a whole lot of income, you got Social Security, uh, maybe a small pension. Well, maybe it makes sense to convert while you're still alive to a Roth IRA. Now, a Roth IRA goes by the same rules. If you inherit a Roth IRA, you have to take the money out over 10 years. The difference is the money comes out tax-free. Certainly a lot better. You don't have to worry about any tax consequences to it. The reason why the IRS does the 10-year rule with Roth IRAs is they don't want you to have tax-free growth for the rest of your life with it. So they're going to limit it to 10 years. Now, in that situation, if you don't need the money, your best bet is to wait to the 10th year and take it all out because you don't have to worry about your tax bracket blowing up. You don't have to worry about your Medicare premium going up. You don't have to worry about any of those other things that are affected by taxable income. So a good strategy, and I've done this with clients that are when they're still alive, is we've converted their uh, traditional IRA, sometimes 100% of it, or sometimes 50% of it before they die. Uh, and that takes a lot of tax pressure 
uh, off their beneficiaries. You know, very, very neat strategy to do that. So always better if you're in a lower tax bracket to convert. Uh, now, uh, the problem with this, too, is that say, say you're um, 50 years old and your parent passes away and you inherit an IRA account. Well, uh, you're going to probably be working those next 10 years because you're only going to be 60 in 10 years and you're going to have to take the money out. Now, say you're, you're earning hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're, you're already in a high tax bracket. You know, taking that money out of the IRA is going to be taxed at your maximum rate. So, so that's a big drawback. Uh, and, and most people who inherit IRAs will be working still. Uh, so, uh, you know, it makes sense if you possibly can do it when you're retired is to convert the traditional IRA or at least as much as you can to a Roth IRA. Now, there's limits to that because if you convert too much of it in any one tax year, now you're the one with the tax problem. Now you're the one with the higher tax bracket. Now you're the one whose Social Security is being taxed. You're the one whose Part B Medicare premium goes up. And a lot of people aren't aware of this, that um, uh, your Medicare Part B premiums uh, are based on your income. It's not the same for everybody. And Medicare beneficiaries earn over 91000 and who are enrolled in Medicare Part B. Uh, it's important to understand this because that amount goes up. So for... Um, I got 2022 numbers in front of me. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the average Part B premium in 2022 was $170 a month. But as soon as your adjusted gross income goes over $91,000, your Medicare premiums start to go up. So let's look at, at single filers first. Uh, if your uh, adjusted gross income is over $91,000 but uh, peaks at one fourteen, that means you're Medicare Part B premiums, $238.10. For those over $114,000 to $142,000, that premium jumps to $340.20. That's $102 more. Um, uh, And if you go higher than that, it just continues to go up. Now, if you're filing jointly, um, uh, Part B premiums, uh, go up once you're over 182,000. It goes to 238 between 182,000 and 228. $340 for couples jointly earning 228,000 to 284,000, and so on, up to a maximum uh, Part B premium of $578.30. Those are for people who have, you know, adjusted gross incomes. Of seven hundred fifty thousand or more. Now, most people don't get affected by that, but what happens if you inherited a big IRA account, a million dollar IRA account, and you're not taking it out over those ten years, and you're forced to take it out in year ten? Well, a you're going to be in the highest tax bracket possible, a majority of that money, uh, and, and b you're going to be paying five hundred seventy-eight dollars and thirty cents for at least one year um, for Medicare Part B. So you need a strategy, you need an accountant, you need a financial planner to do that. Very important that you do it. Now, I mentioned before um, uh, uh, Roth conversions. Uh, Roth conversions are sometimes uh, going to drive your income up and, and, and have all these other things happen, like taxation of Social Security. Uh, you could have Medicare Part B premiums go up. 
and so forth. So really important uh, that uh, you don't do this on your own. And again, it's a, it's a, it's just a tax grab by the IRS, and uh, and it's something that we all have to live with. Uh, but now, where it was pretty easy, where you could just take required minimum distributions or more if you wanted to. Another thing to keep in, uh, in mind is that if you're under 59 and a half uh, and you're inheriting an IRA, all right, you want to make sure it gets into an uh, inherited IRA account because if you need money out of that account and you're not at 59 and a half, you're taking a premature withdrawal. If it's from a 401k or a traditional IRA that's in your name, not only are you going to pay tax on that premature withdrawal, you're going to pay a 10% penalty on it. If you're in an inherited IRA, there's no penalty because it's a death distribution and you save that 10%. So if you think you're going to need money from your inheritance uh, uh, before you're 59 and a half, make sure you set up that inherited IRA uh, and you probably don't want to take it all out um, in one year. So we're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in Congress. I mean, everything they do there now is going to be to increase their revenue. As we've said so many times in this program, we're dealing with uh, uh, major budget deficits. The country's $32 trillion in debt, and it's getting worse uh, by the minute. You ever look at that debt clock on the Internet, and you just see it just spinning I mean, you know, it's going up like 100,000 a second or something like that, some crazy number. Uh, and the government realizes that they have to get as much revenue as possible. And they're going to be tinkering with the estate tax rules again and, and so forth and so on as some of these um, uh, tax provisions that have been very generous sunset in, in, in the next few years. They're going to lower the estate tax exemption. They're going to do everything they can to get the most money out of, out of us. And uh, I'll keep you informed here on The Financial Physician. All right, so it's becoming more evident every day uh, that Joe Biden is the most corrupt uh, president in history of the United States. Uh, and uh, his days as president are coming to an end very, very quickly. Uh, there's no way he's running for, for president for a second term. The question is, does he make it uh, through this year, let alone his first term or not? Uh, it's becoming more evident with every day. The evidence coming out is so overwhelming. Uh, what's going on? On Monday, um, Devin Archer, um, who is uh, Hunter Biden's, was Hunter Biden's best friend, college, uh, college associate, business partner, fellow member on the board, uh, for, fellow board of director of Burisma in Ukraine. I mean, he knows everything that was going on. And he sang like a bird to the committee. Now, Devin Archer, you got to understand the, the background here. He's understandably upset because Joe Biden's Justice Department arrested him and sentenced, sentenced him uh, over a year in prison uh, for apparently um, he stole $60 million from some Native American Thing. I don't know the, the details of it, but he's been convicted of it, and uh, he's going to jail for a year. So, you know, he's, you know, sent emails are out there where he went to Hunter, you know, why is your dad's Justice Department, you know, doing this to me? Do something about it. And the Bidens never did. So uh, there's no reason for Devin Archer uh, not to tell the truth. And like I said, he sang like a bird. Uh, now, he stated that um, 
that Joe Biden called 20 times on speakerphone when Hunter Biden was meeting with uh, potential business partners. Uh, and uh, and that was to show the Biden brand that look who I can get him on the speed phone here anytime he'll pick me up. And that was the way that Hunter Biden was able to get tens of millions of dollars from foreigners uh, because obviously they were buying influence, which was his father. Uh, and uh, and it's a, a classic pay to play, classic uh, corruption, classic influence peddling. Uh, at the highest levels of the U.S. government and for tens of millions of dollars. The number keeps going up. Uh, they're saying it's $50 million now. Who knows? Um, uh, there's 178 suspicious activity reports that banks have provided the committee. A suspicious activity report is exactly what it sounds like. This money's coming from overseas. Is it money laundering? Where is it coming from? Millions of dollars through the SWIFT system. So uh, the committee has all this stuff, and it's all coming out. And you have the uh, the FBI uh, form where the, the informant says that uh, they shook down uh, Burisma for $10 million, and the money was sent, uh, and it was gone through money laundering procedures that will make it hard to find. Uh, you have um, Biden, on his own words, saying that he told the prosecutor that was prosecuting uh, Burisma, his son's company, uh, that he was on a board, that if they didn't fire the prosecutor, they weren't going to get a billion dollars to the, the country of Ukraine. And son of a bitch, um, they fired the prosecutor, in the words of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, so there's so much evidence out there now. Now, the mainstream news media, uh, although they know better, uh, they're very shaken by this, and the Democrats themselves know all this stuff is coming out. And it's pretty hard uh, to run cover for the Bidens anymore. And it just won't be long until they throw them under the bus, but they're not ready quite yet. Uh, and you'll see the, the different takes that the media and the Democrats have on what was said in that hearing uh, and what the Republicans did. Now, James Comer is um, the head of the, uh, the chairman of the Oversight Committee. And after uh, the testimony, he was on Greg Kelly's show on Newsmax. And this is what he had to say. Now, they're going to bring in uh, Dan Goldman. Uh, Dan Goldman's a Democratic congressperson. And he comes out and he tries to defend uh, what went on there as if nothing was really said. And they just talked about the weather. I mean, it's it's quite comical, the, the, the lengths that him and the media and the Democrats would go to say, there's nothing to see here. Let's play it. Specifically that Joe Biden did, in fact, talk to numerous people that his son was receiving wires from while Joe Biden was vice president. And that is something that Joe Biden has consistently lied about. That's what the Democrats have consistently taken Joe Biden's position, saying he never spoke with anyone Hunter Biden was doing business with. But yet we learned today that over 20 times, in fact, Joe Biden, while he was vice president, spoke with people who were sending the Biden family members these suspicious wires that the banks or anyone else in America know what the purpose of the wires were for. But didn't Joe Biden say that uh, he didn't ever talk to his son about business? Well, here's a montage of Joe Biden's lies compiled by uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, pretty amazing. No one established that he did anything wrong. 
or that I violated. Period. He did not do a single thing wrong as everybody's investigated. But look, uh, there is zero, 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 zero evidence of any assertion being made. You know there's not one single bit of evidence, not one little tiny bit, to suggest anything done was wrong. There's not a scintilla of evidence that I did anything wrong. No one has produced one scintilla of evidence that I did anything other than do my job for America. I don't just... All right, so how it goes on and on. Uh, I didn't play the whole thing. But how, just how damaging this, this uh, Devin Archer testimony is, it just added to all the other evidence out there. But this is, I mean, this is testimony from somebody who would know, you know, somebody that was on the Burisma board, somebody that's a business partner of uh, Hunter Biden. And, and there's more that are going to come and testify. And just a small part of the evidence that's out there is enough, to, it's damning enough, just the wire transfers, the bank records. I mean, it's an open and shut case. It really is. Um, and sooner or later, uh, you would think that the media uh, and even Democrats, you know, in Congress would say, you know, hey, enough, enough, enough is enough of this. You know, we can't defend this anymore. But listen to uh, MSNBC, the people at Morning Joe, just saying there's nothing here. Just, just you know, nothing, nothing to see here. Let's just move on. Eyes have been remarkably candid about saying, and we don't have it yet. And, and even House Speaker McCarthy last week sort of pushed back against this impeachment inquiry uh, momentum because he was like, look, we don't have evidence to go that far. And as far as Hunter Biden goes, there's no doubt. I mean, it's pretty clear, even those close to the Biden family suggest that some of his behavior is pretty unseemly. It doesn't make it illegal. And it also means we don't know the role that then Vice President Biden may have played. And it seems like no, they haven't proven that he had anything to do with it. They haven't proven that he profited from this at all. Yet maybe he is guilty of turning a blind eye to some of his son's uh, behavior. And we should put this in context. This is a time when Beau Biden, the president's other son, was ill and then dying and then, and then passed away. Uh, so perhaps he was not as attentive to what he should have been here. But again, there has simply been no evidence, Gene Robinson, no evidence at all that he was profiting from this or he, or that either of them committed a crime when it came to this. And we hear here from Comer and other Republicans, it's wishful thinking. They're trying to create yeah. a scandal when there's no evidence that they have one. Yeah, they're trying to create a scandal or at least the appearance of a scandal, the, the sort of, um, you know, smokiness of a scandal uh, and, and, and just create that atmosphere um, without actual evidence and without an actual scandal. Um, because, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear, at least so far, there is nothing there. Uh, there is nothing there. Uh, you could certainly argue that at, at some point, if, if Hunter Biden put... Um, uh, President Biden on the speakerphone for like 20 times, um, you, you could certainly ask whether at some point he, uh, President Biden might have said, hey, quit putting me on speakerphone. Uh, you know, are, are you having a business meeting? Like, what, what is that about? But um, but the context is that uh, this was a, a, a sort of very fraught and and sad time for the Biden family, and we know how important family... All right, so now it was the Bidens were sad because of the loss of their son and their brother. So, you know, maybe they weren't, you know, too engaged with what they were doing. What a joke. These are the same people. Oh, but a second, the first guy was a member of the Morning Joe panel on MSNBC, 
The second guy was assistant editor of the Washington Post. This is the same guy and the same morning Joe uh, that with no evidence on President Trump of Russia collusion, which turned out to be true because there was no evidence. Um, uh, The the, the walls are closing in on Trump this time. uh, And he was impeached for a phone call. uh, And the phone call was about investigating this corruption that actually happened. And these these Democrats in the media, uh, they're thrashing. I mean – it's kind of obvious. It's pretty hard to defend this stuff with all this. There's no evidence, though, Lincoln Joe. Uh, well, influence peddling, well, who, who's the influence? It's Joe Biden. And if even if there's no wire transfers into Joe's bank account, every family member besides Joe, uh, there's evidence of them getting paid. So you, you don't have to benefit personally. I mean, you, your family's all benefiting and paying your bills. Uh, uh, how are you not benefiting? This is just parsing. And, and American people know better. It's, it, this thing's such a joke. And uh, uh, how long is it going to be before there's going to be calls for uh, Biden to resign by his own party? I mean, at least the Republicans were not as shameless as the Democrats with Richard Nixon. They went to him and said, look, you're going to get impeached. Do the right thing and resign. Now, Democrats don't want to do that because they know President Kamala Harris would be in the wings. Uh, and what's worse? Uh, but, you know, this guy Goldman comes out. He's visibly shaking. Uh, he's, you can tell he's panicked. And, you know, it's pretty hard to def- uh, defend the indefensible. Uh, and he comes out and says, well, they talk mainly about the weather. Well, you know, Biden's not stupid. He's not going to talk specifics of a business deal on a phone call on a speakerphone. The whole idea of the phone call was just to, to prove to these people that, look, I can call my dad anytime. I'll pick up the phone and talk to me. Uh, and that's the, the peddling of the influence uh, is Joe Biden. And by the way, you don't have to have records of getting paid. It's just the fact that you were influence peddling. You were changing your policies. You were doing something because somebody else near and dear to you was benefiting by it. And tangentially, you, yourself. So uh, it, the walls are coming down, and it, it's just a matter of time. Uh, just a few months from now, I think it's going to be at a critical stage. Now, if this was a Republican, it would, already would have been a critical stage because the media wouldn't stop 24-7. Uh, and Republicans who are not shameless like the Democrats are, uh, you know, would have started calling them out and saying, that, you know, this is terrible. But Democrats, you know, they just circle the wagons. They never admit that something uh, as uh, damaging as this testimony is damaging testimony. Oh, there's no evidence. There's no direct evidence here. Um, nothing to see here. So last year, Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre refused to say why Biden didn't, Biden didn't sanction Russian billionaire Alina Baturina. She's uh, the wife of the ex-mayor of Moscow who died, who's an oligarch. And she's a billionaire. And she would not say why Biden didn't sanction her, sanction everybody else in Russia, She wouldn't say whether or not Biden even met with her at a Georgetown restaurant in 2015 while he was vice president. On Monday, Devin Archer testified that Joe Biden met with Russia's Yelena Baterina, uh, who later invested $40 million into Hunter Biden's real estate ventures. And she also paid Hunter Biden $3.5 million in consulting fees. So again, she's the billionaire widow of a corrupt Moscow mayor, and she was left off Biden's sanction list, right? What else do you need? I mean, it's just one thing after the other. This is, this is a racketeering. This is a corruption ring. Uh, it doesn't matter what country you're from. 
Russia, you know, there's all talk. Trump's a Russian uh, stooge, agent. And here you have Russians paying the Bidens $3.5 million, invested $40 million in their real estate deals, uh, and uh, Joe Biden meeting with her in Georgetown. I mean, uh, but there's no evidence, no evidence at all. All right, let's, let's move on. Um, now, before I move on, I want you to listen to a short clip from uh, Jonathan Turley, uh, who was on Fox uh, after Devin Archon's testimony, and he, you know, heard what they said. Uh, this is what Jonathan Turley had to say. No money has to go directly to the president. There's lots of ways to benefit the Biden family. Uh, but the one thing that we can't do is just walk away. We have to find out the full story here. I think this is, is shaping up to be one of the greatest corruption scandals in, in the history of Washington, and that is saying a lot. But according to the media and the congressional Democrats, uh, there's no evidence, nothing going on here. Uh, there's Jonathan Turley, uh, uh, constitutional law scholar, and, and certainly not a conservative. Uh, it just It's just, um, it's, coming, it's coming unglued. And uh, we're going to hear more. We hear more every, each and every day. All right, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit. And I wanted to talk about a hearing that went on in Capitol Hill last week. I meant to cover this on Sunday. I just didn't have enough time. One of the witnesses um, at the hearing on uh, transgenderism uh, was a, a girl named Chloe, uh, Chloe Cole. She's 19 years old. It was her 19th birthday. And she said uh, that she had... I don't know, was coerced to start taking puberty blockers and everything when she was young. Uh, she was given surgery. She was, uh, her breasts were, were, were cut off. And, of course, now she regrets it. Uh, and she's trying to transition back to being a girl. And she gave some really heartfelt testimony. And I want to play some of it for you. My name is Chloe Cole, and I'm a new transitioner. Another way to put that would be, I used to believe that I was born the wrong body. And the adults in my life, whom I trusted, affirmed my belief, and this caused me lifelong irreversible harm. I speak to you today as a victim of one of the biggest medical scandals in the history of the United States of America. I speak to you in the hope that you will have the courage to bring the scandal to an end and ensure that other vulnerable teenagers, children, and young adults don't go through what I went through. At the age of 12, I began to experience what my medical team would later diagnose as gender dysphoria. I was well into an early puberty, and I was very uncomfortable with the changes that were happening to my body. I was, intimida- I was intimidated by male attention, and when I told my parents that I felt like a boy, in retrospect, all I meant was that I hated puberty, that I wanted this newfound sexual attention to go away, that I looked up to my brothers a little bit more than I did to my sisters. I came out as transgender in a letter I sent on the dining room table. My parents were immediately concerned. They felt like they needed to get outside help from medical professionals, but this proved to be a mistake. It immediately set our entire family down a path of ideologically motivated deceit and coercion. The gender specialist I was taken to, taken to see told my parents that I needed to be put on puberty-blocking drugs right away. They asked my parents a simple question. Would you rather have a dead daughter or a living transgender son? The choice was enough for my parents to let their guard down, and in retrospect, I can't blame them. This was the moment that we all became victims of so-called gender-affirming care. I was fast-tracked onto puberty blockers and then testosterone. 
The resulting menopausal like hot flashes made focusing on school impossible. I still get joint pains and weird pops in my back, but they were far worse when I was on the blockers. A month later, when I was 13, I had my first testosterone injection. It's caused permanent changes to my body. My voice will forever be deeper, my jawline sharper, my nose longer, my bone structure um, permanently masculinized, my Adam's apple more prominent, my fertility unknown. I look in the mirror sometimes and I feel like a monster. I had a double mastectomy at 15. They tested my amputated breast for cancer. Now it's cancer free, of course. I was perfectly healthy. There was nothing wrong with my still developing body or my breasts, other than that, as an insecure teenage girl, I felt awkward about it. After my breasts were taken away from me, the tissue was incinerated. Before I was able to legally drive, I had, part, I had a huge part of my future womanhood taken from me. I will never be able to breastfeed. I struggle to look at myself in the mirror at times. I, 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 still, I still struggle to this day with sexual dysfunction. And I have massive scars across my chest and the skin grafts that they use, that they took of my nipples, are weeping fluid today. And they were grafted into a more masculine positioning, they said. After surgery, my grades in school plummeted. Everything that I went through did nothing to address my underlying mental health issues that I had. And my doctors, with their theories on gender, thought that all my problems would go away as soon as I was surgically transformed into something that vaguely resembled a boy. Their theories were wrong. The drugs and surgeries changed my body, but they did not and could not change the basic reality that I am and forever will be a female. When my specialist first told my parents that they could have a dead daughter or a live transgender son, I wasn't suicidal. I was a happy child who struggled because she was different. However, at 16, after my surgery, I did become suicidal. I'm doing better now. But my parents almost got the dead daughter promised to them by my doctors. My doctors had almost created the very nightmare they said they were trying to avoid. So what message do I want to bring to American teenagers and their families? I didn't need to be lied to. I needed compassion. I needed to be loved. I needed to be given therapy to help me work through my issues, not affirm to my delusion that by transforming into a boy, it would solve all my problems. We need to stop telling 12-year-olds that they were born wrong that they are right to reject their own bodies and feel uncomfortable with their own skin. We need to stop telling children that puberty is an option, that they can choose what kind of puberty they will go through, just so they can choose what clothes to wear or what music to listen to. Puberty is a rite of passage to adulthood, not a disease to be mitigated. Today, I should be at home with my family celebrating my 19th birthday, and instead I'm making a desperate plea to my elected, re my elected representatives learn the lessons from other medical scandals like the opioid crisis, to recognize that doctors are human too, and sometimes they are wrong. My childhood was ruined along with thousands of detransitioners that I know through our networks. This needs to stop. You alone can stop it. Enough children have already been victimized by this barbaric pseudoscience. Please let me be your final warning. Thank you. Wow, powerful testimony. And and I played the whole opening statement. Uh, I don't usually play a clip that long, but I thought it was so powerful. And we've been talking about this. It's been in the national psyche. Uh, and any parent or any child that is considering transitioning and taking 
puberty blockers and and these are irreversible things. Or if she was 15 and doctors performed a mastectomy on her. I mean, that that's just unbelievable. And now she has regrets and her life is ruined. And uh, like I said, any parent who has a child who, who you're thinking about doing this to, uh, or any child who's considering this, should really listen to this testimony. And that's why I played it uh, in its entirety. Headline. Transgender seeks assisted suicide in Canada, claiming it's the only way to end suffering from vaginoplasty complication. All right, so this guy is guy who transitioned to be a girl. Uh, and uh, by the way, in, in Canada, they have assisted suicide. You have to apply for it, and it has to be approved by the government. So Lois Cardinal, a 35-year-old transgender woman, is currently engaged in a bitter confrontation with Canada's healthcare system after it denied his request for assisted suicide. Cardinal cites ongoing and severe pain from a complication related to a vaginoplasty procedure he underwent in 2009 as his reason for seeking a medically assisted death. So how old was he? 35 now. 2009 was 14 years ago. So uh, 21 years old when he had the surgery. And how many years before that was he getting uh, the hormone blockers and all that? Who knows? Um, in 2009, I was rushed into having SRS. I guess that's the vaginoplasty surgery. Before I was ready, resulting in immediate regret and sterilization. I'm in constant discomfort and pain, and it's taking this psychological burden on me. I'm not able to access proper medical care. I don't want to continue to do this. Now, what is vaginoplasty? Um, vaginoplasty is a surgical procedure that involves inverting the penis to create a new vagina. And it often leaves recipients suffering from post-operative pain and discomfort. No, no kidding. Sounds gruesome to me. Why not just wear a dress and be done with it like a lot of transgender people do? Um, this is really quite extreme. Uh, according to a recent study from the University of Florida, common complications include pain during intercourse and bladder problems. According to Boston's Children's Hospital, obviously a hospital that condones the surgery on children, uh, vaginoplasty requires a lifetime commitment to aftercare. If you have <laughs> vaginoplasty, you will initially have to dilate your vagina multiple times a day to keep it open. Eventually, that could be reduced to several times a week, depending on a variety of factors. I wonder what that entails. Cardinal formally applied for medical assistance in dying under Canada's law early this year, but the application was rejected. The note from Cardinal's doctor noted that he was suffering from pain anxiety related to neo-vagina or gender affirmation. But Canada's medical assistance in dying rejected his request. After the request was rejected, Cardinal was prescribed a numbing cream for his neo-vagina, but according to him, it was ineffective. 
He told Daily Mail that doctors are more interested in finding out what his pronouns are than easing his pain. I'm not getting any better, nor am I experiencing better medical care or any medical care. It's so captured by gender ideologies that they care more about my pronouns. Cardinal's not just concerned about his situation. He's openly critical of the gender affirmation ideology that led to his undergoing this surgery. He has also posted videos expressing his disagreement with the current rhetoric of the trans community that believes that an inability to have an honest and tough conversation is fueling transphobic sentiments. So now he's against this thing. Of course he is. Um, so there's a, a sad story. Uh, and then uh, uh, there's the story I, I just showed you about the transitioning, detransitioning of people who have regrets about this and try to go back the other way. I mean, you're not going to go back from vaginoplasty. I mean, that's surgery. That's, that's irreversible. You're no longer a performing man at that point. It's just, it's just sick, this stuff. I mean, this is mental illness. And it was categorized as mental, mental illness, trans, up until a few years ago. Um, and and, and it, it's tough enough when someone who's 21 decides to do it. But now they're trying to force it on our kids at 10, 11, 12, start taking hormone blockers. And you heard that, that, that tragic testimony uh, from Chloe uh, to, the, to the Congress about the mistakes that she made, he made, whatever. It was a girl who was transitioning to a guy. Um, and the mental uh, stress that she'd been going through uh, trying to detransition. Bottom line is kids are not old enough to know what they want, who they are. And the problem is, is they're being indoctrinated. They're being um, groomed and, and, and thoughts are being put in their brains that maybe, you know, you should really think twice about whether you're a guy or a girl because maybe you don't really know. And you're seeing a larger and larger percentage of students now saying that they identify as uh, non-binary Meaning that I'm not necessarily a guy or a girl. I could be either or something in between or 50 other uh, gender possibilities. I mean, it's total insanity. And, and, and this is the way we want to uh, educate our kids. Just craziness. More craziness. All right, although I can go on for another hour or two with all the insanity that's going on in our country and our world, we're going to end it here. Uh, just a reminder, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, my email address is lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Something you want me to cover on the program, you have a comment about the program or uh, something I could help you with personally, please feel free to email me at lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I promise to respond to each and every email. And remember, we upload two podcasts a week. The main podcast is Sunday morning. It's uploaded by 9 a.m. and many times uh, earlier than that. As a matter of fact, last week I put up the Sunday podcast Saturday night. So go to Podomatic when you go there. Make sure you follow the program because you'll get an instant email whenever we upload the podcast. We do our midweek podcast. I upload that Wednesday afternoon or early Wednesday evening. Not as long as the Sunday show, though it easily could be. Uh, so uh, just tune in to either uh, tune into both of our podcasts, the Sunday podcast, and don't miss the midweek podcast because 
I usually don't repeat on Sunday what I talk about on Wednesday, so you're missing uh, a good portion of the things that we have to talk about here on The Financial Physician. Until next time, don't forget, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far. See you.